0: So I've been working on my authorization service and it's totally sweet. It's only taken me six months to build it, just six months. I started implementing some basic RBAC library, but that wasn't enough, obviously. So I designed relationship-based fine-grained authorization for the highest security possible. And then to make it super fast, I used a GPU tower running in my mom's basement, of course, connected via optic cable to bare metal server at my local esports lounge, permissions, restrictions, and admin nailed it.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Whatever you did sounds cool, but like there's also another option. Oh, really? Yeah, with Permit.io. Permit is the full stack authorization platform created so you never have to build permissions again. Build and manage permissions for any application with policy as code, APIs, developer-friendly SDKs, and user-facing UIs. Permit is an end-to-end authorization platform built on top of open-source policy engines. It's high-performing, gets decisions in less than 10 milliseconds, and uses a hybrid approach where config is in the cloud. But data and decisions are made locally. Not only is it intuitive, it lets you implement fully functional authorization in five minutes, not six months, and in the code base you prefer. Check out the link in the show notes or go to permit.io to learn more. That's p-e-r-m-i-t.io. Sign up for permit
0: and stop rebuilding off. I knew from the very beginning, running always on infrastructure in cloud is a sucker's bet. And you cannot build a good business doing that. And ultimately we need to build a good business. We run net-booted bare metal, it started before Kubernetes was really a thing. So our own orchestration system with containers, our database, was designed to scale and be fast in a multi-tenant environment, not let any customer slow down the infrastructure. But That's been a big focus of mine. I I run Usenet as a hobby, 30 gigabits a second, hundreds of terabytes a day, big distributed system. It's relaxing for me. My name is Avi Friedman, and I'm a co-founder and the CEO at Kentik.
1: This is Codestorm. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Like six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know it what to do. Took many next. goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. The company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. was proud of her team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was up eight. Yes, pain. we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, my Took day. it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it, not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart. And today, how Avi Freedom is giving you everything you wanted to know about your network from data center to container to cloud. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy managed file transfer tools lack proper security, putting sensitive data at risk. With KiteWorks MFT, companies can send automated or ad hoc files in a fully integrated, highly secure manner. The solution is FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense and has been so since 2017. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit kiteworks.com to get started. This episode is sponsored by ClearQuery. ClearQuery is the analytics for humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. With Ask ClearQuery, you can find valuable insights into your data using plain English. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify your data analytics with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash code story. Avi Friedman became obsessed with tech at age eight. He was given a basic programming book by his uncle in 1978, and at that point, he was hooked. But outside of tech, he's been married for 30 years and likes to play pot limit Omaha, which is poker, and to do taekwondo to keep his body healthy. Avi ran the network group at Akamai and thought that networking observability was a solved problem. After he left Akamai, he noticed that in fact it was not. He moved to the Bay Area and got started building a solution to solve just that. This is the creation story of Kentik.
0: So Kentik is a SaaS company that helps people who run the infrastructure that connects us all to make it fast and secure. So specifically, we started down at the network level, which connects everything, selling to engineers, architects, operations, sometimes into business and security taking telemetry from all those devices both physical and virtual so that telemetry is traffic data which is netflow sflow vpc flow logs in the cloud evpf instrumentation on servers and containers It's metrics, which is SNMP, streaming telemetry, cloud metrics. It's performance testing, where we can't get traffic data with performance, which is synthetic tests from the network layer up to the application and and into the browser testing. It's routing protocols that connect everything, so specifically the border gateway protocol that connects all the networks together and looking at performance security, hijacks, things like that. And it's a modern SaaS platform. We are big fans of how honeycomb markets we started before them, but focused on the network, but violent agreement that you need to be able to answer any questions. We don't want our platform to be like preparing for the SAT where you have to give it all the test questions and then it can like build up. We keep everything. APIs integrate pretty widely and integrate across the observability ecosystem too. So I have been in networking. I started the first ISP in Philadelphia back in 92, uh, because there was no way to get dial-up internet access when I was leaving university. And I always wanted to run a multi-line bulletin board system and sold that and then went to work for a company called Akamai, where I ran the network group. Akamai is a big global CDN. And one of the first things I did was solve the traffic understanding problem, so we could figure out where we needed to deploy servers. After leaving Akamai, I discovered that this was not a solved problem. I actually started with boxes, if you've seen the show Silicon Valley, The Box, and everyone that deployed it said, what do we do with all this traffic we can now generate? So talked to a bunch of people that ran, whether it was service provider or big web companies or enterprise infrastructure, and they said, yeah, this is a huge problem for us. We're stuck in a land of crappy appliances and Windows software, and someone needs to modernize this. It's always been a huge scale problem. Looked like an interesting space. Decided to move from Philadelphia out to the Bay Area, where I was the first seven years of Kentik. Bootstrapped the company inside of a Usenet company that I had. So it was doing traffic and I had servers and infrastructure to test with. And then got started back in uh, 2014.
1: So let's dive into the MVP, that first version of Kintec that you built. You know, maybe that was the twenty fourteen version, or maybe it's got remnants from you know things that you set up at Akamai. Tell me about that version and how you know how long it took you to build it, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life.
0: The main challenge in the first version that we were solving was the database challenge. In twenty thirteen, ClickHouse wasn't around. Time series databases were still like storing files like Graphite or RRD tool. Databases, except for very multi-tens of millions of dollars, uh, specialized uh, data warehouse databases had no multi-tenancy. And Hadoop was ruling the land. Java for infrastructure, by the way, in my opinion, is one of the most ungreen things one can do. So every ESG group should be looking at that in a company software-wise. People were trying to use Hadoop at the time and struggling with this stuff. I had been running a Usenet company... I am an old dinosaur, so I I write C code and Perl for prototyping. Decided to try to solve the database problem of it because I had put traffic data from networks into time series databases, relational databases, and, and they just fall over, even today. The cardinality problem, the things considered to be time series databases, all fall over when the number of unique values, the cardinality, how many cardinal elements are in a set, is too high. They just don't deal with that well. But think about network traffic. How many IPv4 addresses are there? There's four billion. How many IPv6 addresses there? are there? Two to the 64th. When you combine all that together, you get huge amounts of cardinality. The people we talked to were using one particular appliance, a thing called Arbor, which had these things called managed objects, which are basically roll-ups. And what people wanted, which we still focus on, is ask any question. So the appliance solution was take all this traffic, aggregate it, and and make metric streams. And so our challenge was, how can we keep it all and do fast querying over it all. The first challenge was build a database. So we built a multi-tenant column store database. And the first UI, because CSS makes me angry and I just get confused by DOMS and browser stuff, it was a daemon written in Perl to modify JavaScript files in a directory with some auto-reload stuff to you know do some dashboards and let people drop down, do queries, and then have it auto-update. The gentleman, Sergio, who worked with me on that, who now works at Kentech, he and I were more back-end people playing with front-end. But it was enough to show the concept. When we started showing it to people, 80% of the time, we got two questions. How much does this cost? And the second question was, when can we play with it? And this is a very horrible user interface. We went to people that were living the problem, many of whom had tried to build their own version of it so they knew how hard it was. And that gave us confidence to raise venture capital money and build out the team and,
1: and get going. This episode is sponsored by CashFly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where CashFly comes in. CashFly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits – for over 20 years, CashFly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only CashFly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5 terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free learn more at cashfly.com slash code story that's c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com slash code story this episode is sponsored by kiteworks legacy managed file transfer tools are dated and lack the security that today's remote workforce demands companies that continue relying on outdated technology put their sensitive data at risk and that's where kiteworks comes in KiteWorks MFT is absolutely the most secure MFT on the market today. It has been FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense since 2017. Through FedRAMP, KiteWorks level of security compliance provides a fast route to CMMC compliance, saving customers time, effort, and money. KiteWorks MFT makes it easy for users to send automated or ad hoc files via fully integrated shared folders and emails. Administrators can manage policies in a unified console and create custom integrations using their API. Did we mention it's secure? The level of security with KiteWorks solution is rare to find. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit kiteworks.com to get started. That's k i t e w o r k s.com. So then you've got that MVP, you raised capital, you're about to take off. Tell me about how you progressed the product and matured it. And I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is, how did you go about building your roadmap? And how did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Kinti?
0: I've run networks. Our first CTO helped convince me to build the product because he was a user of he was ran networks since me, since 1992. And so he he lived the problem as well. So early on, we certainly had customers and prospects asking for endless streams of features, but we also had thesis. So as we've gotten more mature, and I won't go there, we try to be very careful to limit how much energy we put in product-wise to our, our thesis. Like we know this is what people want in the Henry Ford sense. And, but early on, there was just a ton of features that people wanted. It was like when I started at Akamai, I missed the building 10 features per customer, and we were only building one feature per customer. And then eventually we got to the point where we were only building one feature per 10 customers. But early on, we knew we had to build a bunch of stuff. Customers were also resonating with it and we were just whacking away. My co-founder, Ian Pai is a, a implementation madman. I was organizing and prioritizing by what I thought was important. And in fact, until before we raised capital, we built a whole version one framework. And I was also very sensitive, last point, because there was a company that had started in the networking space that every single customer was a snowflake. They were using Hadoop and Flash as a front end and they just went in and said, well, build whatever you want. And I really didn't want to do that. We really, I really knew, we're not trying to build a law firm, we're trying to build a SaaS company with repeatabilities. There was no science to it. I don't have a professional product background, and it was organized by a lot of what I would call thesis. Like, we think we know what people will need. People are asking for it, and let's just prioritize and get as much done as we can.
1: Good stuff. Okay, let's switch to team then. So you mentioned that team, and I hear you saying we. How did you build your team, and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you?
0: We had a CTO who joined basically as soon as we got funding, because it was just three and then four of us uh, until then. He built out a team, it was very flat initially, and he ran product as well. We've always really looked for people that are intellectually curious. The gentleman who runs engineering now happened to have been our first external user back when Postgres SQL was our API. Because the backend system that we built uses Postgres as an API, basically via foreign data wrappers, and we built out an eight-person team. It was split half, was split into front end and back end. We've now changed that organization a little bit, but in some sense, it's we still mirror that. Again, went to town. It's a SaaS product, so we ship all the time, and we do run disconnected. So not non-disconnect. We do run infrastructures. There are copies of Kentik for customers that don't want to be multi-tenanted, but they're all SaaS. We've matured some in terms of how we ship and staging environments and, of course, CI/CD. But basically, when we have features to ship, we can ship them in preview, we can ship them in production. And that's obviously a very different software engineering organization than in the old model of shipping software that people install and upgrade themselves.
1: This episode is sponsored by Cashfly.
0: The web is a competitive
1: place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all well, then you lose. But that's where CashFly comes in. CashFly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, CashFly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only CashFly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, CodeStory listeners can get a 5 terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at That's cachefly.com/codestory. That's c a c h e f l y.com/codestory. Hello, welcome to the Data Analytics Club. Do you know the password? No, I didn't know there was one. Do you know how to code? Uh, no. Do you know how to query data? Like, ask a question? I guess not. Hmm, I see. Then you can't be in this club. Sorry, goodbye. Don't be left out of the Analytics Club. ClearQuery is the Analytics for Humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. ClearQuery provides you with the information you need without requiring you to do the heavy lifting. Their Ask ClearQuery feature allows you to ask questions in plain English, helping you find relationships and connections in your data that may have previously gone unnoticed. You can even visualize your data with presentation mode, taking your data storytelling to the next level. Pricing is based on storage, not licenses, and that ensures that you get the most bang for your buck. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify data analytics, your data analytics, with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. Let's flip to scalability. And this this will be interesting how you approach this from day one or, you know, as you went. So, Was this built to scale efficiently from day one or with scale in mind, maybe thinking abstraction or things like that, or have there been areas where you've
0: had to fight this as you grow? We've been fortunate that where we fought as we grow is less on the technology side and more on the what features are we doing, how and when, and how do we do that, and how do we communicate all this to customers, and how do we make onboarding easier because early on we had fewer customers that were bigger and we could have people handhold them through some of that stuff. On the technology side, I knew from the very beginning running always on infrastructure in cloud is a sucker's bet, and you cannot build a good business doing that. And ultimately, we need to build a good business. So we run net-booted bare metal. We started before Kubernetes was really a thing. So our own orchestration system with containers, not all, but mostly. Our database was designed to scale and be fast in a multi-tenant environment, not let any user, query, customer, slow down the infrastructure. But that's been a big focus of mine data technology, networking, doing things at scale. I, I run Usenet as a hobby, which is 30 gigabits a second, hundreds of terabytes a day, big distributed system. It's relaxing for me. That's the kind of stuff that I enjoy. So our scale challenges have been organization, feature velocity, communicating to customers, onboarding. And then of course, a bunch of stuff. Organization is a whole separate topic. How do you grow an organization and keep it happy? So no, we've been very fortunate that we designed for efficiency and for scaling out. We've had issues, but not the chronic, oh my God, we have weeks of, we're in a bad place and we need to madly rewrite everything. That's never happened.
1: Lavi, as you step out on the balcony,
0: you look across all that you've built. What are you most proud of? What I do when I get frustrated is one, go talk to customers. We have a great team, but ultimately we're here for the customers and see them love the product, even when they're spitting mad that they can't do this RBAC feature, role-based access control. What it means is that we're solving a real problem for them and we're helping them hugely. If only we would be 2% better, their life would be better. That's great. The second is, I go back to my time in college when I was, I I had done database consulting from a very young age and I, I had the money to buy computer toys. And I ran public access Unix machines and someone had showed up at the door and said in 1991 and said, I will pay you $100,000 a year inflation adjusted to write software and do sysadmin for the rest of your life. I would have said, I sign up. That sounds good. So when just frustrations in business or whatever, I just look at it and try to have gratitude and say, we're in a pretty good place that the things that I enjoy doing have been are valuable and well-compensated. When I step back, I look at what we've done for customers here, at Akamai, at my internet provider, and that's why I'm on the business side too, is because just building it without people using it doesn't get you that kind of validation.
1: Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded
0: to it. One of the mistakes I think we made was a strategic mistake. We started the company i was probably a little bit too enamored with the idea of raising venture capital which i had never done before now i had worked for the ceo at two companies that went public and joined both of them just before they went public so i had missed all those first stages but i dealt with venture capitalists on the board and i thought it's a big problem space and i have some experience i had done and sold a couple smaller companies and worked in large public companies And I think that we can grow faster with capital. It's a big enough market to address. But we baked into the company and the product the idea that we could help people update with regular expressions. For example, every interface on their routers and what it means. People, and people were, if they're motivated enough and they understand infrastructure, they can onboard to Kentik and always have been able to. But we spent probably the last four years and it's a continuous journey and our new products even more focused, trying to help people onboard better, using the lessons from product-led growth to say, how can we help people discover and onboard? And that wasn't a lot in our DNA because we raised capital and dealt with larger customers, if, if fast, immediately, multi, 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 $100,000 customers as our first customers. And so if we had bootstrapped inside my, using infrastructure in Virginia, and gotten a hundred customers, it would have forced some of that DNA of Simplify. It's not the technical side, it's more how do we build the product and how do people discover it and how do we explain it to people? So we have a self-driving demo now and synthesized traffic, but there's some areas where we probably like that the product from a how you have to understand it get a little bit broader than a little bit more optimized. And so I would go back and I would bootstrap the first couple of years not from an economic perspective to own more equity, but to force us to have forced us to think about making that, that whole process easier. We decided to cheat when I started. Actually, we really cheated in other ways when we started, because I considered to be I consider laziness to be a sign of a great architect. But we used Postgres, as I mentioned, as to do two things. One to parse SQL, because SQL was our original API. It turns out people don't really want that, but that was how we started. Now it's all RESTful API and SQL's there underneath. And we also used it to combine all the results from our distributed system. So Postgres has a capability called foreign data wrappers where you can basically write your own data engine. So imagine Postgres parses SQL, gives us the representation of that. We do all the planning, dispatch, and subqueries to get this data. Send all the parts of the response back, and then Postgres folds it all together to give the answer back. We've started having issues at our scale with that, where we can scale it out, but it's not the most efficient. So we're now in a change the wheels on the bus, move more and more out of Postgres until eventually Postgres won't be in the middle of that. In hindsight, was it a big mistake? No, it got us to eight years and still the system is running and we're throwing a little bit more resource at it. but. That's one of four or five technical designs that we probably could have gotten better.
1: Well, okay. So this will be fun to ask. Tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team.
0: So we've declared pretty firmly that our focus is observability for infrastructure and then more, not networking in an observability way. We already see up into the application layer doing performance tests, and when we take telemetry from service meshes and load balancers and CDN type things, as well as the, yeah, as I mentioned, the performance testing. We're we're a pretty broad platform with a lot of data advantages. For right now, we're very focused on those infrastructure running professionals, people that run that network and clusters. But we have a lot of capabilities. And as we add metrics and events and things like that, we think broadly that there needs to be a leader in the, at giant scale in the observability space that has that network side as, as a background, and there really isn't one. There's people that came from the developer side, there's people that came from the security side, there's people that came more from the system side. Our focus the next couple of years as a couple hundred person company is on those workflows and, and telemetry for the network, but future Kentic is a broader observability company. Team-wise, there's pluses and minuses to being remote. We were almost half remote before COVID hit, just because we would hire good people anywhere. We're still thinking about some of that. And I would say the jury's out. We don't have any offices right now. People are, we're starting to see people want some more connection. Right now we're making that do with travel, but people wise, I think likely will continue remote, continue growing carefully in this economy. You wanna make sure that you're not getting too aggressive. You've got a good business underneath because that's what's being rewarded. If you look at the public company, We could call them comps, the comparables in the public world. People are rewarding in the middle. So that's the path that we're taking is prudent growth.
1: Let's switch to you, Avi. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why.
0: Danny Lewin was one of the co-founders at Akamai. It was really a very intense time of my life when I joined. They were experiencing hyper growth. Danny uh, was the technical co-founder, technologist, CTO. Now, Tom Layton, who's the CEO, I have huge respect for, was less on the customer-facing side at the time, but a brilliant man. But Danny, I got to see and work with when he was at that intersection of technology and customer. And just his energy, passion, drive, creativity, just strategy, you could drop him in anywhere and he would figure it out. And lead and muster, and really leading in the very Israeli way. He was American uh, and Israeli. He split his time growing up of not go there, but follow me. Like, here's where we're going. Really articulating the vision. Unfortunately, he was the first person murdered by the terrorists on 9-11. So that was a huge blow to Akamai, which has thrived and grown and honored his legacy. But just The customer passion and leading from the front, not asking people to do things that you wouldn't do, are areas that I hugely respect. I try to hold Danny in my mind. Another gentleman from Akamai, George kain was the CEO. He was very good at building a team, setting the mission, delegating, and really setting the context so people understood where to go in the business context, they teach CEOs and CEO school. You gotta say it until you're sick of saying it and then say it again because you can't over communicate. And as someone with ADD who's passionate and curious about very widely setting the focus, communicating clearly, those are things which I still work on improving because I see the possibility space of everything and wanna go for it all and don't wanna limit where we are and what we're doing. And I will tell you, I applied to Y Combinator. One of my friends who is a co-founder of Akamai, Jonathan Seelig, had worked on the business side and actually formed the nucleus and structure of a group that I I wound up working with. And he said, I just fell out of my chair laughing when I told him I was applying to Y Combinator. And I was like, "I, I don't know, it seems like there's a lot to learn. And I try to go into things thinking that I'm here to learn. But it really has been truly amazing how much I suck and need to improve constantly running a company.
1: We talked about a mistake earlier, but this is a little different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Doesn't have
0: to be something that, you know, didn't work. Could have worked well, but maybe you tweak it a little bit. Bootstrap longer. Separate conversation about what should you try to build? What do you want to build? I would still go for the path of trying to build the larger company, an enduring technology company to address observability and for people, but I think that bootstrapping a little longer can help influence the DNA in ways that are harder to do once you're At a larger scale, the DNA of the company There's probably also some product areas probably would have gotten into some cloud stuff more sooner, made some different people decisions. But I I think really just from a direction perspective, we're were an infinite number of possibilities. It was a real problem space, probably would have been able to build something no matter which direction we went. But that's probably the thing I would whisper to myself most if I could send a, a whisper message back in time.
1: Last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: I would say it would be situational. It's like I do in customer discovery. I would try to talk to them a little bit more. I'm a pretty firm believer in it's all situational. What do you want to do? I'm not going to go lecture to someone about what to do with their company if I don't know what they want to do with their company. Read the gentleman I call the great Lemkoni, Jason Lemkin. He was a VC, I don't think he's a VC anymore. Created something called Sastr, S-A-A-S-T-R. He's written blogs in a very circular way. It's content marketing. Even the ways in which I disagree with what he's written about how to hire marketing people or salespeople or structure the company are instructive, interesting conversations. They're thoughtful. Even when you say, I just read another blog that was like that. It's repetitive. It teaches you, you need to repeat yourself as, as a CEO. That's number one. And number two, go read enterprise ready. I think it's dot org or dot IO. It's put out by, it's content marketing from the folks at replicated. It's the best content marketing I've ever seen. And it's the things you should think about before you start trying to build, not just technology side, but like what enterprise need out of SaaS that you should at least have a position on, even if you're not building. RBAC, Enterprise Logging, Auditing, and, and, and Preparing for the Certifications, Multi-Tenancy When you're Starting is a really great time to be thinking As I said, even if You're not building it, how to not build Inconsistent with those things That Enterprise will want at some point
1: Well, That's fantastic. Lavi, well, thank you For being on the show today. Thank you For telling the creation story of Kintik
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite And look forward to listening and le- to And learning from your other guests as well
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.